listeners, and thank you for tuning in to the Media Pod. I'm your host and the deputy editor in chief at Mediafile, Caroline Corbett, and we've got a fast-paced look at the media landscape across all of our sections at Mediafile today. And the news cycle has been super quick this week as the midterms approach, so we've got a lot to talk about. Again, thanks for listening, and welcome to the Media Pod. Let me introduce today's co-hosts, Rob Klein, Avi Bajpai, and Michael Kohler. I'm Rob. I'm the editor-in-chief here at Mediafile. Hi, I'm Avi. Uh, I'm a politics writer. Hi, my name is Michael, and I'm a new reporter for the international section. All right, and first up is Avi um, talking a little bit about some really interesting and kind of explosive politics articles that have come out um, in the past week. So the first one is going to be um, just sort of a broad look at how investigative journalism has had a resurgence, actually, since the Trump administration began, obviously, because um, there's a lot to investigate. And it's been really well illustrated by two uh, recent stories. One is um, an expose of Devin Nunez's family farm operation uh, written by Ryan Lizza for Esquire and another bombshell New York Times report I'm sure we've all seen um, that exposes Donald Trump's role in his family's past tax fraud. So if you want to give us a little bit more about those two, Avi. Right. So uh, the Ryan Lizza story, first off, was uh, definitely my favorite piece from the week. It really reminded me of the importance of investigative journalism and um, essentially for our uh, listeners who haven't had a chance to read it yet, uh, Ryan Lizza started taking a look at uh, Devin Nunes, the Republican from California, his uh, family's longtime dairy farm operation, which used to be in California where uh, Nunes is from, but recently moved to Iowa. And uh, Lizza essentially started poking around why they moved that they made that shift from California, and once he started looking at the dairy farm, uh, dairy farming industry as a whole, he started to realize the gross hypocrisy of uh, dairy farm operations that employ dozens of undocumented immigrants, but then overwhelmingly vote for uh, Republicans. They voted for Donald Trump, and uh, just the sort of duality of voting for policies that call for deporting uh, undocumented immigrants, but then also relying heavily on those immigrants for their business. So um, that that piece was really um, interesting, and uh, I'm curious to see what you guys thought about it too. I think, I think some important context is um, that, yeah, Nunez has been not just an arch-conservative as of late, but just a complete lackey for the president in Congress. Absolutely. He's the, he's the chairman of the committee, the Intelligence Committee, which um, not only had the oversight to investigate uh, Russian interference, but they also have used their, their oversight to interfere in the Mueller probe. Um, so Nunez has been one of the president's best friends in Congress, and it's so spectacular because, as the article says... He wasn't always this kind of congressman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he was far more moderate just yeah. a few years ago. He leads the fake news charge, yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. And, there, and I mean, you can't, you can't definitively say that there's backlash to this piece, but this has definitely sharpened his edge when it comes to the way he attacks the no, media. No, there is backlash to this piece. When I, when I looked it up to try and read it, this is actually really interesting, when I looked it up to try and read it from, like, the top stories weren't even the article I was looking for. It was um, a bunch of stories from conservative news outlets talking about how 
uh, the media was attacking Nunez, um, stalking his family. I meant, I meant from Nunez himself oh, because okay. he's normally, you know, a big hashtag fake news person. Very true. Right. And the, an, an, an interesting story I want to tag on from yesterday. Um, the the um, local newspaper from his district, the Fresno Bee in California, Fresno, California, that's like, you know, kind of the seminal newspaper of their region, of the Fresno region in California. And they have uh, kind of not just taken this Esquire story, but kind of taken all the Nunez scandals and put it, you know, shown, shown truth to power. Um, and that obviously upsets Nunez. And he spent a whole lot of money sending out a 38-page mailer to his constituents just to attack the Fresno Bee. He calls it the Valley's propaganda machine with all Yikes. kinds of wow. scary... I can show you, and I encourage everyone listening, like Google Google um, Nunez Fresno B. This is the picture of the mailer he sent out. Um, wow. That's graphic. It is, yeah, it's... Obviously, he, his, his message, for, for those of you listening and not looking at my computer screen, the message is that those at the Fresno B are drinking the Kool-Aid while they ride a sinking ship. It's a... <laughs> Double metaphor it's right extreme. there, yeah. It's a little yeah. extreme. It, it contains things about how they're, you know, socialist and with Antifa and with the resistance. Um, and this is just because they are simply reporting on his, his record and his, what he does. I mean, Nunez was found, right. you know, he was recorded at a fundraiser locally, or recently just completely admitting to small-scale corruption Right. The president. Yeah, I think this is like a prime example of everything we hope journalism to be. Mm -hmm. You know, sleuthing, or not sleuthing, but like following the money, holding uh, government officials accountable. And I think this embodies exactly what we in the media hope to see out of journalism and investigative journalism. And really, this backlash from uh, government officials is what we're looking for when we're the ones trying to hold them right. accountable. And something that I was actually really impressed by um, with this article, again, that just makes it a really excellent investigative piece, um, is that they didn't shy away from uh, letting the fallout hit maybe some other outlets that didn't do a great job with this. Um, one that was mentioned was the Wall Street Journal because uh, a couple months ago they published an article with a byline in, uh, in California where Nunez is from, uh, yet the story talks about being on Nunez's family farm. Uh, exact, actually, the intro to the article is um, like something along the lines of, oh, I'm standing with Devin on his farm, uh, sweating a little bit because it's hot out and the byline is in California. So it's like, why in the world is the Wall Street Journal let, perpetuating the idea that the farm is still in California? Like, that's, I don't know if that was an oversight on their part, um, but it's still misleading. And it's actually quite strange that nobody picked up on the fact that his farm was no longer in his district um, until four years after it actually moved. Um, you know, that's sort of... I think the Wall Street Journal just... Shortcoming. That's a major shortcoming. I think right now they see their role as to, like, defend Republicans just yes. because no one else in their in their caliber is. No yeah, other to be the yeah. counterbalance. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. To push exactly. back on... And sometimes it makes them do ridiculous stuff. Yeah, I, right. I agree. Although the, the article was, um, was a little critical of Nunes, but still... We should probably transition to the New York Times story, obviously. The New York Times story is the product of an 18-month-long investigation. Three Times journalists have been working on it, and the final piece that was published, I believe, two days ago was 15,000 words, so it's a huge product of investigative journalism. Essentially, 
the Times journalists went through hundreds of uh, documents, primarily tax records of Fred Trump, who is Donald Trump's father, uh, and they reviewed these uh, tax records, um, other you know court filings, other related documents, going back to the mid-80s, even before that, and essentially uncovered uh, multiple instances of deceptive uh, financial practices or even outright fraudulent practices of either undervaluing their properties or um, just uh, taking advantage of loopholes in uh, the tax code. And the main takeaway is the uh, undermining of the narrative that Trump pushed when he was campaigning, which was that he took a minimal loan from his father and transformed it into this $10 billion industry, this empire. And this Times piece essentially shows us that uh, that is a complete farce. The, uh, the figure that Trump uh, quoted many times was a $1 million loan. In, in reality, the Times estimated that uh, Trump received at least $60 million from his father. Wow. Um, in other uh, estimates, they estimated that over time, the Trump parents, the, the head of the empire, transferred a billion dollars of their wealth to their children. And it should have been taxed at a gift uh, tax rate of 55%, but was actually taxed at 5.2%, which is just gross uh, corruption, I don't know, um, deception and uh, fraudulent practices. Absolutely. Right. I think one of the most fascinating um, pieces of evidence that they, they brought up in this piece was that at age three, President Trump was making two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars a year. That stuck out to me. And a lot. I mean, he was a millionaire by age eight, I think. Yeah. yeah. Like just just an asset right. that his yeah. father had put in a trust for him. That's the small loan. Yeah. This, yeah. Obviously, that small loan was an eight eight, uh, eight birthday gift. And yeah. we made fun of that because a million dollars is not small, you know. Right. right. Yeah. And, you know, what is it? Four hundred forty-one million or something like that. Yeah. Even it was greater. yeah four forty. Right. Yeah. Maybe four forty-three. I can't remember. Right. So, I think. From a journalism standpoint, I mean, Columbia Journalism Review kind of nailed it, talking about this article. Um, they, they, Their quote was, It's an example of journalism as a long game, a sport that more of us need to be playing. Um, and this article took 18 months <laughs> to get out there. So um, it's it was certainly a long game. But, and you a, know, a, it a produced... Note, if I can, if I yeah, can interrupt, ahead. a note is that if we remember like a year ago, maybe even more, uh, mm-hmm. R- Rachel Maddow had this supposed tax right, yeah. tax right. Yeah. She, she she promoted right. i think she first went on the late show yeah. with colbert and was like i have I important have breaking news she had the documents and then she revealed it and it turned out to be less than right it was one page but it's and still, then she still had you know weight but yeah the right. reporter who who brought that to her Mm-hmm. Um, the reporter who had that document was the same New York Times, one of the New York Times reporters who was on this piece. Right. And he said he got that delivered. David K. Johnston, right? Yeah. Right. Johnson? Yeah. yeah. And he said it was delivered to his, he's a, he's a veteran at the, yeah. at the New York Times. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he said it was just dropped anonymously in his mailbox, this tax information. So that's how long they've been on this. Like you said, I mean, 18 months just right. to. How long ago does it feel that the Rachel Maddow tax return? Thing? I know four I think, years ago yeah. in the Trump news cycle world. Yeah, yeah so I think that's that right. And just going too. off of the Columbia Journalism Review uh, article, I think one of the issues with media coverage and journalism in this administration is that 
we've all just become so um, acclimatized to sort of the access journalism aspect mm-hmm. of things and seeing bombshells being reported on, especially on Twitter, every couple of hours, right. you get updates on what sources within the White House are saying. And it really sort of, once you get trapped into that climate, you, I mean, I, for, I can speak for myself, I forgot about the value of investigative journalism yeah. because it's just been out of the news for so right. long. Well, mm-hmm. and right. it, you know, we're all expecting now that, um, that if there's something to find, we're going to hear about it within, you know, a few days to a few weeks of, of it being in the news cycle. Whereas this article, we were all talking about the Trump family corruption a year ago, two years ago, um, and nothing really truly this substantial ever came out about it and I think that led a lot of people to mistakenly assume that you know there's nothing to find if it hasn't gotten out there and actually the Columbia Journalism Review kind of addressed this because they were saying you know a lot of people were asking why did this take so long like why didn't you bring this up a year ago but it's because like you can never underestimate how long it might take to find um to find the real substantial stuff on this because you know the Trump family although they're sometimes characterized as such, like, they weren't complete idiots. They did a lot to hide this. They did a lot to make sure that um, oh, yeah, this it would was, be, it this would was be a, hard to dig up. Yeah. So, you know, it, you can never um, you can never take it for granted how hard these people work to uncover this stuff. Right. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think the general populace sees a lot of these investigative journalist, journalism pieces from the past, like Woodward and Bernstein, and um, the Boston Globe's reporting on the uh, Catholic Church sex abuse scandal highlighted in Spotlight, and they see these, you know, um, Hollywood reproductions of them, whether that be like All the President's Men or Spotlight, yep. and they see, like they ask, well, why don't we have anything like this? Why aren't like more pieces being done like this? Right. When really, in reality, it takes months, if not years, of to just complete. Behind the scenes. Right? Yeah, it, yeah. It's just follow the money. Don't yeah, and it's you. you know, it's real. You're working under this incredibly pressuring environment. With uh, in the Devin uh, in the Ryan Lizza uh, story, you know, he was being tailed by Devin Nunez, Devin Nunez's father, his mother, and his brother <laughs> and his sister-in-law at different points <laughs> in oh, his. No. I only laugh because it sounds so like <laughs> so unbelievable. But yeah. a poll came out today showing his opponent in the race closer than ever before. Really? Yeah. Nunez's well, opponent. It was either today or yesterday. There was a whole batch of California congressional wow. polls. I would also just um, make another point about the Times piece that um, the other reason I appreciate this story so much and the hard work that those uh, journalists put into it is because if you think about traditionally the way our government works, this should not have been up to the Times to mm-hmm. undercover or uh, sorry uncover. It should have been some sort of government. Um, Absolutely. I mean, we you have know, an vessel, entire yeah. federal office dedicated yeah. to looking <laughs> into corruption. And, right. And yeah. I mean, it's been, it's a norm that presidential candidates release their tax returns, but in this instance, it just shows us why that is just absolutely necessary. Yeah. If mm-hmm. Congress was serious about getting to the bottom of such troubling right. issues, would then they would have right. been the ones uncovering the stuff. Right. Um, all right, well, let's move on to international. Um, I'm really excited to talk about uh, this topic just because it doesn't always get the most attention, but it's actually extremely important, and uh, there is some really good um, some really good angles on it. So Michael wanted to talk about the recent coverage of uh, the changes in sanctions that the United States is putting onto Iran and the ICJ. So. 
Right, so I think this might have been a little bit more below-the-fold story this week with everything going on, Kavanaugh hearings, the such. But something going on in the international stage is that the... So back in May, just to provide a little bit of background, uh, President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the JCPOA, or more commonly known as the Iran deal, and reinstituted a lot of the sanctions that the Iran deal lifted after so many years in the Bush and Obama administrations. Those uh, Iran a few months ago, filed a complaint in the International Court of Justice, which is basically court for nations and states to file complaints in and to sue other states in. Um, They filed a a complaint that these sanctions that were reimposed were harming them on a humanitarian basis. Um, And so just yesterday or two days ago, the International Court of Justice basically put in an injunction that said the U.S. has to lift these sanctions because they're harming Iran in such a way. And Secretary Pompeo basically told the ICJ, was like, uh, no thank you, we'll do our own thing here, and actually pulled the U.S. out of the 1955 Treaty of Amity with Iran, which is this really old treaty that basically says that Iran and the U.S. should be friends. And now, remember, this was written in 1955, two years, two years after the U.S. supported um, overthrow of you know, right. President Mossadegh, um, back when the U.S. and Iran used, used to be friends, you know, then the 70s and 80s happened, and we're not friends, uh, but we still have this treaty in place. Uh, I think a lot of the interesting international coverage on this was that, ultimately, there are no immediate implications with this. Um, ignoring the ICJ is actually pretty common. The ICJ really doesn't have any teeth to enforce any of these things, even though they call these binding decisions. It's an odd take to be seeing the administration pulling back from so many different aspects of the world community, specifically the yeah. UN. And I think uh, journalists across the world are really picking up on that. Um, when I went to go sort of just you got some more information about this story earlier, um, definitely seemed like the uh, the media coverage was like 10 to 1 on humanitarian like world court content versus like economic impact or just other um, implications like pretty much every single story was just about um, how the United Nation has demanded the United States to lift these sanctions. Um, yeah, I think there was a lot of confusion on yeah, this story because I mean, absolutely, the, it's a really old treaty, and the ICJ is not in the news that often. And right. So ultimately, a lot of these new, news sources were um, didn't really know, like didn't really know where exactly. To go with this. Yeah, unless you were looking at something niche, um, you were pretty much only going to get news about uh, United Nations. Having it. said that, I will say that you know this week. As with all the other weeks, I was just totally encompassed with news here right. regarding Kavanaugh and the other stuff. But I did see a couple of articles uh, from sources here, I think CNN and The Times and other places. They did sort of stress this fact, the, um, uh, the fact that it was so unusual for the U.S. to pull out of that, uh, to sort of cancel that 1955 treaty and how mm-hmm. that is just such a, um, you know... We, our relationship with Iran has had its ups and downs. We've had some very hawkish politicians um, comment on that relationship, but we've always, you know, that's just been like an existing framework that existed. So I did, I mean, I did see um, some some news outlets stressing that so that yeah. Uh, yeah. people would understand. Iran coverage has definitely been lost because Absolutely. there is, I mean, there have been demonstrations that have gotten violent recently. Uh, a group of Revolutionary Guard members in Iran were, were killed. Um, there's been, you know, large-scale protests. And I the people 
in Iran are trying to democratize their government. And um, Iran's facing pressure from all over, and we're not really seeing that much journalism on this. Right, and for a country that we have such a strained, complicated, um, and historic relationship with, it's actually incredibly interesting that there's not much media coverage uh, when something's going on that we're not, like, directly, directly related and, like, you know, there's not Americans on the ground, so we're not really hearing about it, and that's just a total disservice to people who need to be able to analyze um, with context when things actually do happen that are huge, not to say that this isn't huge for Iran, but when things are huge with the United States and Iran, um, even more so than they are with this uh, sanction situation. Right. Yeah, I think one of the interesting facets of this, too, is that I mean, we're not going to be seeing immediate implications, especially on you know our side here. We're not going to see the implications of sanctions being right. in place on Iran. But ultimately, the more interesting facet is that we're quietly turning into an isolationist state here. Mm-hmm. We're pulling back from a lot of these UN traditions and a lot of these right. UN agencies. And I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of the U.S. news isn't really covering yeah, as the much. Yeah, the alarm's not being sounded. Right. Yeah. And so when we, when the U.S. wants to do something on the UN level we're going to have less credibility because of that and less countries are going to vote exactly. our way and they might start voting towards, let's say, China or Russia or things like that. Right. Well, that was an amazing look into what international coverage, what the direction is going to be um, from now on because I definitely think that this doesn't just apply to Iran. Definitely check out Media Files World News You Miss, then you will know it all. All right. Well, we will um, we'll move on from international and start going into the opinion section. Uh, that's actually the story that I brought to the table. Um, we have a, an amazing new writer, um, Carly Noble, who wrote this article about sort of the way that Me Too uh, stories can miss the mark, especially when they're focusing on the human interest aspect rather than uh, like the systemic issues, the root causes. Um, and I had definitely been thinking about that, but never um, got a chance to articulate it that well. So thanks to Carly for um, bringing that to everybody's attention. Um, it actually really reminded me of a 538 article that I happened upon in the past week. Um, I thought that it was amazing. Essentially, she did an analysis that revealed that toxic masculinity um, is way more important than alcohol when you're talking about men committing sexual assault. and. That's absolutely essential for us to talk about, and it's such a departure from what you usually see from the media when it comes to Me Too, because she's saying this is a reason, like this is a scientifically um, a scientifically pinpointed reason why sexual assault happens, and you know we need there's a huge conversation around alcohol and sexual assault right now because of all the reporting on Brett Kavanaugh and uh, sort of the idea of was he drinking like as such a as almost as if his assault was contingent on it and you know what was uh Dr. Blasey Ford drinking and does that mean that she's telling the truth and you know it's important to consider but it ends up being the biggest talking point a lot of the time when we know and a lot of research shows that that's not the reason why sexual assault happens because obviously plenty of sexual assaults happen where there's no alcohol involved so basically this got me thinking you know is the media doing its due diligence with covering sexual assault Um, and there's a really interesting question here because the media, I mean, check out Media Files industry section, like the media is rife with people who are committing sexual assault in very high up positions. And we're sort of expecting an entity to report on itself and its own wrongdoing and expecting them to get it right. And that's absolutely, um, that's absolutely sort of like a catch 22 in my opinion. Um, 
it's really unfortunate that a lot of times the people who are going to be covering Me Too, we saw this with Matt Lauer, right? Like, they were literally talking about the Me Too movement on the show before he got um, in trouble, if I remember correctly. For them, it was just like a shock because from what I remember, they received a memo, a company-wide memo about the uh, Matt Lauer situation like the mm-hmm. night before. Right. Or I yeah. think early or in the early morning. Of, practically, right. yeah. practically on air. Like they yeah. were, they yeah. were shocked. Yeah. So um, that really, that raises questions about how uh, big media corporations deal with these situations. Exactly, and it's like no big corporation is handling Me Too exceedingly well. So it's, it's not odd to see the media world not being an exception when it comes to handling Me Too. Um, I just think that it's really important for these stories like the 538 article to be at the forefront because what we're seeing right now is essentially the same article again and again with different names. Um, and it's, it's not helping ordinary people because we're thinking about a nation where it's not just famous people, it's not just people who are journalists or um, celebrity in some way. And that's pretty much all we're seeing coverage about right now, unless you're looking at a report that's, you know, just blanket numbers. That's not giving a face to individuals. That's not serving most people who are thinking about sexual assault and sexual assault culture. And, you know, that goes for people who might be committing sexual assault as well. Like, there are people out there who are making that happen, um, and they're media consumers as well. And when the narrative that's being shown is that it's powerful people and it's um, these people who are being taken down from their big positions, it's sort of, it won't necessarily connect with them perfectly. So I'm wondering what you guys are thinking about that. Yeah, I think we do spend a lot of time taking a look at just anecdotes of the Me Too moment and not, not really enough time looking at the systemic issues behind the actual movement or behind the actual problem. I think that's actually where the whole Hollywood Me Too movement was actually making good progress and starting to look at where these uh, where the faults lie with men in power taking advantage of the actresses that they're working with. But I think the Kavanaugh hearings have actually been a step backward for the mm-hmm. Me Too moment oh, movement sure. because it's been reigniting all of these different notions of like boys will be boys and alcohols to blame, things like that, where really we were making so much progress as far as, you know, bringing this problem to light. And now since we're trying to give so much equal time to both sides of the issues and like trying to pay so much respect to the Kavanaugh's background and his uh, expertise on the court and things like that, that it's ultimately been harmful to the movement in the past week or so. Yeah, I think it's absolutely unacceptable a lot of the things that have been published in the wake of uh, the Kavanaugh story because, you know, I think the biggest example is the doppelganger theory. Oh, yeah. Why was that published in a major media outlet? There is no evidence for it. Um, It was published as an opinion piece, but we all know that plenty of readers take that to be the truth. Um, Well, with... The Wall Street Journal, it was written by their editorial board. Right. It wasn't, because I, I... Not to hate on the Wall Street Journal <laughs> yeah. again, but right. like, get it yeah. No, this, this, this was throughout the media. This was also yeah. in the Washington Post, but it was an opinion um, writer who wrote it herself. And then they actually, interestingly enough, they had like four other opinion pieces which said in different words, the doppelganger theory is like ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah. I, I was really questioning what was the logic to that yeah having that piece published but then also having like four other pieces that are directly questioning it well and the real problem with that and you know it's not um the job of the media pod to to like talk about the political ramifications but just as journalists when you assess the credibility of a story you can't in one instance say that 
Dr. Ford is credible. Yeah. And then also say, I know who assaulted yeah. her and she doesn't. Yeah. That's right. that's so stupid. I mean, if you she said she with a hundred percent certainty she knows she was sexually assaulted. And it seems By like Brett Kavanaugh. Well, I was about to say that, yeah. She says that with a hundred percent certainty she was sexually assaulted and everyone pretty much agrees. Right. No, no one has even pushed back on that. Except for people on the on the farther right. But most people in Congress know, and people in the, at the Wall Street Journal. But for some reason, they think at the same time, they can say that she has no credibility when she says she's 100%, 100% certain that it's Kavanaugh. Well, yeah, I think that one, one of my favorite tweets this week was uh, Ezra Klein during the, during the hearing last week, during Kavanaugh's uh, portion of the hearing, was, uh, I'm not going to read it here, but basically summed up saying, Every Republican admits that they believe Ford was sexually assaulted at one point, but that potentially she's mistaken in her memory that it was Kavanaugh. However, none of them are willing to admit that about Kavanaugh, that maybe he's mistaken, maybe he doesn't remember it correctly. Exactly. And so it's really that, like, ultimately sexist thinking, like, only the man can be fully right in this situation. Right, it's, you know, it's like, if you're really doing this dichotomy thing where, we, oh, we need to hear from both sides, then where are the articles about how Kavanaugh won't, might not be remembering because he was too drunk? You know, um, so this this is just something that's been really it's, on my mind since this happened. Yeah, and like it's it's irresponsible, and like I want to stress that it's I'm not making a political point because if the Wall Street Journal wanted to write editorials that said Kavanaugh's not or not Kavanaugh that Dr. Ford is not credible and we don't believe her at all, I mean I I don't agree, but that's their right as a as the free press they can right. publish what they think. But if it, if it was logically is, founded, right? Yeah, exactly. Their duty is to be logical. Yeah, and it's right. Like, you know, no, and the doppel like, the, the doppelganger thing was honestly just laughable. And the other thing was the within the uh, same it, days that that came out was the Ed Whelan thing. Yeah, where literally called some man out theory. by name, and destroyed right. some I mean, man's reputation. That, exactly. That happened two weeks ago, and it already feels like it was two years ago. Right. But um, if they're so, con- you know, it, people are acting like it's such an incredible disservice to our country that Brett Kavanaugh is being smeared, yet they smear this random guy who just happened to be in the yearbook and have a similar, you know, face in high school I mean, to that Brett was, Kavanaugh. that was, like, potentially libelous. Yeah, right. nobody's even mad about it. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, so absolutely a double standard. And if to, to further kind of drive point drive the point home is that he worked with the PR... They, the doppelganger theory was developed yeah. in tandem with mm-hmm. the Republican PR. Yeah. Right. And Republican not... PR company that exactly. um, I am forgetting the intricacies of like how deeply connected everyone was, but I believe there was a staffer on Chuck Grassley's mm-hmm. uh, in Chuck Grassley's office who resigned literally the day after this theory came out because he was also accused of sexual harassment. But that's separate. Right. I remember that. But yeah. he yeah. was working. Uh, he had taken a leave of absence from the same firm that was helping Ed Whelan push this theory. Right. Um, and and it's an absolute lapse in journalistic ethics to not disclose that or report about it um, just from the Wall Street Journal's right. side. So um, I think another big media aspect of this thing is that um, a, lo- a lot of the media is feeling so much pressure right now to have to report on both sides, have to right. give validity to both sides of the argument no matter what the story is. And so they're they're giving credibility to um, sides of the story that may like that are, fall one way ideologically, but fall another way factually. 
and right. may not be completely factual. Yeah. yeah. So just, I would just close out like if we're thinking about moving on to the next yeah. thing, I would just close this out by saying you mentioned toxic masculinity and mm-hmm. um, what was the other thing you mentioned? I can't uh, remember now. It was toxic masculinity and alcohol. So yeah, yeah. Exactly. I was just gonna say. Um, if you wanted to summarize Brett Kavanaugh after this entire debacle, mm-hmm. I would say toxic masculinity and alcohol. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And just, <laughs> just this to, is your book quote. Yeah. <laughs> portrays that enough. Yeah. So just to close this out, um, I think I thought a lot about what I would like to see, um, because I believe that criticism, um, is not nearly as valuable if you don't have a recommendation afterwards. So I'm really enjoying, um, well, not enjoying is the wrong word, but um, I, I'm very supportive of the hashtag why I didn't report um, movement that's happening right now. I think it's um, a necessary second step to Me Too, but also that um, it sort of does what we needed Me Too to do a lot better um, because what it does is it's addressing like the deeply systemic problems of why rape culture isn't going away because it's letting women share exactly what happened to them to make them fear feel fearful and or intimidated or powerless you know when something happens to them and they're assaulted um and essentially raises awareness to why there is no awareness um which is completely essential and you know it's actually it's it's pushing people to do more than just you know kick out the abusers and say you know oh we we can wash our hands now we're done with this we did our job like no you didn't if you're not tearing down the systemic problems with your institution then this will just keep happening over and over again so um i think that that hashtag is extremely important and i wish it was getting covered much much more um i know that the reason it's probably not is just because of cycle burnout um people are paying a lot of attention to kavanaugh hashtag me too got an insane amount of media attention when it first started and continues to so i guess my hope would be that why i didn't report gets gets picked up a little bit more and why i didn't report is a hashtag on the website, twitter.com. Twitter. That's what we're talking about next. <laughs> a, much, a much different topic. Um, so, we're going to be moving on to yeah, yeah, an industry, industry um, discussion. Yeah, so this is our industry story. Uh, I'll just read the Washington Post headline first. Quote, fake news ecosystem still thrives two years after the 2016 election, new report says. Now, before we go into the report, we have to make... You know, a special mention. Special mention, This report was done by two researchers, one of which is one of our professors here at uh, George Washington University. Mediafile is born and based out of the School of Media and Public Affairs, and Professor Matthew Hyman is one of our wonderful professors who made news with this this awesome report. Well, the content's not awesome, but it's awesome that they did it. So the title kind of says it all. There is... Not just fake news, but on Twitter, there is a proven ecosystem of fake news where there's a power structure, there is an information flow that isn't understood as much as it should be by a lot of people. There are plenty of troubling statistics that came with the report, and the, the headline was 80% of accounts that shared fake news during the election are still active today. And as a group, those 80% of accounts publish more than a million tweets in a, in a typical day. A million tweets a day from 80% of the accounts that spread fake news during the election, uh, and it's, it's two years later, folks. It's insane. It's, the election was uh, 11 months and one year ago, so that's how long. Uh, and only 20% of those accounts are gone. 
Researchers also found in the report that 65% of the links to uh, fake news and conspiratorial news went to just 10 websites. So out of all of these uh, links to fake news being shared, they were all going back to the same source. So like I said, there's a hierarchy. Um, and, and I'm sure we can guess what a few of those sites are. We don't... For sure. Yeah. Yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, InfoWars probably number one. Right. And a, a lot of them are websites that are put up by Russian troll farms, by uh, Ukrainians uh, who have been engaging in this fake news work. They put up these websites that it have... It's interesting to call it that. It's literally a job. For, for yeah, it's yeah. their job. It's their job. Well, I mean, remember that report of the guy from Ukraine mm-hmm. who was just making bank? doing it in his basement, Absolutely. making fake news. Um, but yeah, the uh, these websites are put up by these Russian and uh, Ukrainian entities, pose as American websites. And the way they bring people in, they appeal to that very 4chan, Trump-supporting, conspiratorial kind of, crowd yeah. um, that typically leans alt-right and sometimes alt-left. Not that that's a thing, but there are definitely people on the left that are involved in this conspiracy theory ecosystem. And yeah, these websites, they use Twitter expertly to drive traffic to their fake news. It's almost like Twitter works for them at this point. This is, you know, this is among the backdrop that Twitter is trying to tell everyone that they're working hard to get this fixed. And it's hard for us to know because all we know about what Twitter is doing is what they tell us uh, they're doing. Well, and they told us something new on Monday. And yes. that's, that's what I wanted to say is that Bloomberg article I'm, I'm reading from, uh, Twitter ramps up fight against fake news profiles before midterms. So they rolled out this blog post on their website, saying, on Twitter's website, not Bloomberg, saying what they're actually doing to combat fake news because they've been getting so much you know, backlash from the public. They said they're improving their algorithms to identify spam and automated accounts. And in the first half of September, Twitter challenged an average of 9.4 million accounts each week. Wow. Um, That's just staggering. That is yeah. a lot, yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's staggering. And uh, they also have changed their algorithm to make it so that there's less echo chambers because those two issues are connected. Kind of the Twitter echo chamber enables fake news because people see these things. Encourages it. Right. Yeah. P- people see the, the, the news reports that are part of that echo chamber yeah. and most of the time appeal to someone's political ideology because we know that the Russian operatives were looking to divide Americans. And uh, Twitter kind of changed their algorithm to intentionally show you accounts that you don't follow who are on opposite sides of the political spectrum. And there has been you know, all kinds of reactions to that. I, for one, am tired of seeing Charlie Kirk on my damn timeline. <laughs> um, but Twitter thinks that this is the way uh, what what do we think? Do we think disrupting these echo chambers is the way to go? I mean, I may be missing something, but to me, it seems like what's really happening or what might unintentionally happen with this echo chamber bubble bursting idea is that um, we're going to be seeing even more fake news on our timelines, at least people who try to avoid it, because I love Twitter. Um, I'm not ashamed to admit it. And uh, I know it's I know it's a cesspool, but... I work so hard to make sure that my timeline is real news only, okay? Because I got that email like a year ago or whenever they sent it. I talked about this on the last podcast um, that says, oh, you clicked a fake news link from your Twitter account. I was like, God, it happens to everybody. But anyway, (laughs) so I try and make sure that my Twitter ecosystem 
is at least healthy and filled with real journalists who aren't just making stuff up in a basement in Russia. Um, and yet now I might be seeing sponsored tweets on my timeline that are coming from those sources. So um, to me, it seems toxic, but you know, it could be um, working in reverse for people who only see fake news and maybe now they're seeing a, someone who's credible on their timeline. So I guess that can't hurt, but we don't know if it helps. Whether or not, you know, I don't think it's, obviously it's not possible for us to uh, determine to what extent these companies like Twitter and Facebook are taking proactive measures to combat uh, fake news. But I can say that I don't think Congress has the ability to uh, get these the, get the answers no, we, from we saw in the Silicon Valley. Hearing. They are extremely bad, and they just don't have the right touch to get to the bottom of things with Silicon Valley, That's like it's e- okay. Yeah. I mean, the, okay. Face of, the face of the Senate, Senate the past two days has been Chuck Grassley and <laughs> Dianne Feinstein. Right, right. yeah. So, not two people you would think... Not cybersecurity experts. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, that's that's a whole other discussion about <laughs> the, just our ancient Congress, especially the Senate. The Senate is mm-hmm. much older, right? Um, because, you know, that's an entrenched position. And then these people who are, you know, in their 80s, and then they... They're like, oh, I'm going to run for another six-year term. I mean, the Zuckerberg hearings devolved from a few good questions where he was being held to account, and then it just devolved into, like, you know, questions about how email is used on Facebook (laughs) and uh, other things where Zuckerberg just had this out of, like, the people asking me these questions clearly don't understand what they're talking about. Um, I thought that was a failure of transparency. Right. I think one of the, um, now I can't say this for certain, I'm no statistical analysis expert or anything, but I think I think Russia's trying a different strategy on Twitter than it is on Facebook. I think a, a Twitter retweet or like is a lot more valuable than a Facebook share, uh-huh. as in, I think the strategy on Facebook is actually trying to convince people of fake news, while the Twitter strategy is to disseminate this fake news as mm-hmm. much as possible and not rely on like pe- actual people sharing right, this. Right. Um, in order to literally just sow discord. Yeah. So when the liberal snowflakes on Twitter get triggered, or however you may put it, that um, you know conservative people on Twitter are less likely to retweet you know, a fake news story. But as, as long as Russia gets as many fake people tweeting fake things, then they're just sowing that discord, which ultimately is their goal. They don't care about capturing the presidency. They don't care about having Congress underneath their belt or whatever. They care about making sure America is fighting America. Right. And and no, you're absolutely right. And there's research to show this because, uh, you know, big polls have been done because people got really freaked out and they were like, oh my God, are people actually believing this fake news? Um, so they did big polls about it. And, you know, thankfully most people don't, essentially was what they found. But what they do believe is that people on the other side believe all the crazy shit, excuse me, that they're seeing on their timeline. Because, you know, if... Like you said, if you're a conservative and you see some like something you think is complete liberal craziness that was in reality posted by a Russian bot, it's going to make you angry. Um, and you're going to take that anger and throw it and onto the, real liberals in the real world who probably don't even believe the role of, The role of bots is really important here because this study looked at kind of, you know, there's a small debate happening over this issue. Are bots the problem or are bots kind of an effect of the problem? Right. And this study found that uh, there were actually human, quote-unquote, <laughs> actual humans. That's the, what they <laughs> <Surprise, laughs> There were actual humans. humans who might have been more important than the bots in spreading fake news. Um, 
to quote the article, while the authors found ample evidence of the importance of bots in the networks of disinformation they studied, they said accounts run by actual humans may have been even more important. One third of the most heavily followed Twitter accounts that link to phony news reports appeared to be bots, but more appeared to be humans. Wow. So well, I think that shows us that the human, the actual person behind tweets that promote fake news can tailor it right. to their audience. Mm-hmm. And bots, it's, I think, work with the dissemination aspect. Right. But if you have an actual person who understands what keywords people are looking for, right. then that's yeah. just more potent. And I mean, the, the, I mean, like, that's the entire, I think, the genesis of this study yeah. is that, and they say it... Um, well, it's sort of like a two-pronged approach is what they're getting it's a, at. But it's a coordinated campaign. Yeah, yeah, and that's definitely. what they say in this report. They say... This is a quote from the port. They say, Most fake news on Twitter links to a few established conspiracy and propaganda sites. Mm-hmm. And coordinated campaigns play a crucial role in spreading fake news. So like you said, it's like the apparatus of the human bot, some, sometimes unwitting partnership. Right. Where um, they kind of encourage each other. And it, it, it brings people to this fake yeah. news. So I think even reporting on this news, though, that like a lot of these accounts are still fake, a lot of this is still like keeping us from having actual discussion on Twitter because you know when you're scrolling, like when you see Rod Rosenstein or Mueller trending on Twitter and you scroll through, it's like, you know, I bet they're fake. I bet they're fake. Who knows? Maybe you're not. And yeah. I'm sure someone on the other side is reading a lot of the liberal tweets and being like, oh, I bet they're fake. Who knows? We don't know anymore, and that's the that's the yeah. terrible, Twitter, awful part yeah. about this. So, so Twitter released like a like their kind of like list, um, what they look for, and they said, but like we can't do that list because Twitter actually has AI that they mm-hmm. have programmed to weed out fake news. They didn't. It's not like they have you know teams of people looking through. Yeah. What their AI looks for is repeated stock image profile pictures, copy and pasted Twitter bios, and. Um, Lots False of these, yeah. misleading so they're fighting Lots war of these, on bots, not yeah, the right. humans. Yeah, yeah. Right. but see, I, I feel like until we know for certain that all of the bots are gone, oh, we're, we fixed the problem. We'll right. never really be able to have right. actual discussion on Twitter without people saying, "Oh, yeah. you're you're fake news. You're not even just fake news. You're a fake person or whatever." Oh yeah, yeah I yeah. would. Yeah. I would just ask. I don't mean to be the pessimist in the room, but <laughs> uh, you know, let's say that Twitter manages to extinguish, get rid of all of these bots. Um, to me, it seems that the polarization has just reached a point where we, you know, if you get rid of the fake news mechanisms, it has just seeped too deep, in my opinion, into the discussion or the lack thereof. Yeah. Yeah. And the problem, well, that's very, tr- that very speaks, possible. That speaks to a problem about political division in general yeah. mm-hmm. is that we think bridging divides on Twitter is bridging divides. And it's not. It's just making the psychology shows this. Um, there's a great op-ed called "Twitter's Flawed Solution to Political Polarization," uh, written by a sociologist named Christopher Bale. For and the New York Times. For the New York Times, yeah. So basically, this kind of talks about the psychology of political division and how, you know, the only way to really overcome those divisions is to have human interactions and human yeah. because when you are faced with a person. And you have a real life discussion. You're more likely to move towards each other. Right. Um, pitting people against each other on Twitter is only going to do exactly that. I'm going to see something I agree with, and you're going to see something you disagree with, and we're both just going to get more mad, and we're going to be enabled to yell at each other more because 
you know, that's what we do when we're behind a keyboard. So do you think Twitter or social media in general has a role in political discourse then, or do you think oh, it's just generally toxic? Absolutely. I mean, but we're not going to fix the deep, deep problem of division in our country by trying to fix it on Twitter and Facebook. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Well, we're coming up on an hour of recording, so <laughs> I think we're going to try and wrap it up. I really have enjoyed this um, fake news Twitter discussion because it's sort of fallen by the wayside in the past uh, few months. Every, everything has. Everything, everything has. yeah. But What's real anymore? Yeah, but we, we cannot forget about this. Um, one uplifting part of the report was that actually one of those top sites that they just couldn't seem to get rid of that are posting these conspiracy theories and fake news, uh, one called therealstrategy.com, it's just gone. It's because Twitter was able to sort of like cut off the source for all of its views um, and eventually the site went down, so... Um, they're doing, they're onto something. They shadow ban too. Yeah, and, and they do some, they've been making some headway essentially, but um, I'll just sort of end this conversation with a quote from a Professor Hyman. <laughs> so, shout out to our hero. Yeah, shout out Professor Hyman. He says, fake news isn't hundreds of accounts and fighting it isn't whack-a-mole. It's a couple dozen persistent sites that do this all day, every day. So I think that speaks a lot to uh, the bot army and the sort of war of attrition that Twitter is fighting with the bot army. Because even if, as Avi said, we were able to extinguish all of those bots, there would still be the real accounts that are sort of like the commanders of the bot army. And, and then even further, there's the root, which are these sites that um, are using social media to survive. So democracy is being fought in a war against fake Twitter accounts and non-human AI. Right. Uh, 2018 we is don't fun. have to do it anymore. We can just leave <laughs> yeah. it up to them. Yeah, so, politics, <laughs> let's leave it to the bots, guys. Of course. I think that's a great way to wrap up this pod. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe one day this pod can be done by bots, and we could have, uh, you know, gone for some pizza or something. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Go do something fun well, in our dystopian society. Yeah. All right, thank you for listening again. It's always lovely to record the Media Pod, and I'm so glad that we're back in the swing of things. Um, you can expect a new episode of the Media Pod bi-weekly. So two weeks from now, uh, we'll have a brand new one up on the site, hopefully. Um, and don't forget, please tune in. Follow us on Twitter. Follow Mediafile on Facebook. Get us on your Apple News. All right. Goodbye, everyone. Let's all try that again. We should all say bye. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye, bye. bye everyone. Bye.